you're listening to the Nonprofit Build-Up Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Campbell. I want to support movements that can interrupt cycles of injustice and inequity and shift power towards vulnerable and marginalized communities. I've spent years working in and with nonprofits and philanthropies, and I know how important infrastructure is to outcomes. On this show, we'll talk about how to build capacity to transform the way you and your organization work. Oh, I I hear you on that. And I think when we flip the conversation a bit and think about funders now, what are we, and we can look at what do we want to see funders do more of in this sector? Oh, see, I can give you both sides on funders. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have to be additive when it comes to that. There's a lot they can do less of. Okay, more is more money. I'm just kidding. I think... I do think funders can do more efficiency. I think there could be more of a labor burden on funders than on grantees in a lot of places. And I'll give an example. We have had several funders of Resolve that have opted to do verbal reports and the funder takes the notes and the organization shows up. And they are prepared with an update. They're prepared with questions that they're answering. I mean, it's not like a free-for-all. The funder is getting the information that they're needing to get. And the organization is saving hours and hours and hours of time. So that's one thing that I think funders could be doing more of is finding ways to pull some of that burden from grantees. I have more too, but I'll give, I'll, Gene, you should talk. <laughs> I'll do one and then, and then you can do another. <laughs> I would say, I mean, you know, the tried and true stuff, more general operating support, more multi-year support. And I would say there is a, I don't know if we can call it a movement, a trend, whatever it is in philanthropy towards trust-based philanthropy, right? And I think my understanding of what that means is You don't have to prove how you are going to save the world in the next 12 months with $30,000. I'm not asking you when you write your proposal to explain how you're going to end racism in 36 months based on the $10,000 that we are going to give you. It is about saying, okay, I see the work that you're doing. I see you. I see how your team shows up. I see the work that you have ongoing. I'm going to give you some support for a number of years to do the thing that you are doing. Yes, tell me about what you are looking towards, what you are hoping to achieve and how you're thinking about measuring that work over time. But you don't have to give me 25 very specific metrics that you expect to be exponentially greater over the course of a 24-month period. And so I think more of the trust-based approach would be incredibly helpful. I will add one more, and that's more collaboration. And I want to be clear that I don't necessarily mean collaborative funds. In our space right now, in journalism, there's lots and lots of talk about a new collaborative fund, half a billion dollars, all you know, going directly to local newsrooms across the country. It's a huge pool of money. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. I think there's also a lot of the same dangers around gatekeeping red tapey process, lots of big institutions coming together with big 
personalities and all sorts of things that can sometimes get in the way of efficient process of good communication with grantees and with the public. And so when I say more collaboration, like why, what about a fund that just goes and matches like a long program, you know, if they're interested in health, going and matching grants that other foundations are giving, trusting, I think innovation, more innovation, more working together, more using the learnings that other foundations are gleaning from their work looking a little bit more outward beyond their legacy gifts and the you know same networks that they exist within looking to other industries looking to other spaces like expanding priorities more years just echoing that more and more and more years of funding one year no more of that less one year funding <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's I'll be done with that. <laughs> no, but I think all of this, when we started talking about the work that Resolve is doing and how we are viewing nonprofits and the kinds of things we want to see within the sector, what what you all have articulated, it makes sense. And so my question then is what is the next step for funders, right? So if we look at pulling some of that labor, that burden from grantees, what's the first step that they can take to do that, right? Because a lot of these suggestions where we're talking about more of this particular thing, they're not so outlandish. They're not outlandish at all where you could say, well, how would we even start? But it's not happening, right? Or as frequently as we would like to see. So what do you say to funders, right, who are saying, we'd love to do that? What's the first step? I think Cass gave an important one around grant reporting. Like that is a step that could easily be implemented, right? You're not talking about kind of changing how boards give away money or rethinking endowments or anything like that. It's just, you know what? We can take some of the onus and labor off of the grantees when it comes to reporting and allow them to submit verbally or to send a report that they've sent to another funder that is related to the work, you know, some way of easing that burden. I think similarly for applications, there are ways for it to be a lot less time intensive for the grantees and not necessarily a verbal application, but allowing grantees to submit language that they've used other places as long as it aligns with the same goals as the funder. I think another quick and easy step Cass mentioned at some point, you know, the kind of gatekeeping that happens in this world. And there are those of us with a large amount of social capital and connections to funders. And there are a lot of folks that don't have that. And so I think another easy step that some funders and foundations could make is just making themselves more accessible. I don't know, hosting office hours once a month where just when someone goes onto your website, they know how not just to contact you, but actually have a way to get their foot in their door and introduce themselves. Because those of us who do fundraising know that it is all about relationships. Ultimately, when foundations or individuals choose to give, it is in part based on the work that you are presenting. And it is also based on their impressions of you as a leader or you as a fundraiser and their faith and trust and confidence in you to be able to carry out the work. And relationships matter. And I think funders 
have a varying degree to how much they want to feel like partners or feel like they're involved in the work. But I think all of them, at least all of the ones that Kathy and I have interacted with over our years of doing this work, want to feel like we have some sort of relationship that they know us, that we know them. And so we've been fortunate enough and also, you know, fortunate enough to have had some doors opened early on and then really worked hard to cultivate those relationships. But for people who are just starting out or who are small or who don't have these networks to begin with, as a funder, if you can offer an opportunity to have there be less of a gate between you and new folks through office hours, through meet and greets, whatever it is, that could go a really long way. Thank you. I think all of those are just very practical. And so if funders are listening, I think those are really great first steps to get us closer to where we all envision this sector going. And we've talked a lot about infrastructure and, you know, our focus here at BuildUp is really on infrastructure being at the core of how an organization grows and builds and really is able to innovate. And I wanted to get your thoughts on how you are seeing infrastructure, the role of infrastructure show up in the work that you're doing. And I think it also gives us the ability to return to this concept of rest and really seeing rest as part of that infrastructure as well. And just love to get your thoughts on how you're able to weave in that infrastructure building and focus within the work that you're doing. So, I mean, as you can probably tell, Cassie and I are pretty like process and infrastructure focused people. I will admit I have become so working with Cassie. That was not at all my kind of inclination or or natural tendency when we first started working together. And I have learned so much from her over the years and feel really fortunate to have had the opportunity to learn from and alongside her in these ways. So I think when it comes to infrastructure, it's got to be a priority that is set out from the highest level in the sense that those of us in leadership know that one of the best ways to lead is by example. And so if you as a leader are taking time to establish processes for your organization, and by processes, I can mean everything from project management software. I mean, we rely on Asana. I literally don't know what we would do or how we would function if we didn't have it. By processes, I mean thinking really critically about how we onboard people and making sure that that is a very kind of slow and intentional process that enables folks to feel really welcomed and included on our team from day one. It's thinking about meeting structure and meeting times. How are we having conversations? Who is included in those conversations? What conversations are being prioritized or deprioritized? Constantly kind of assessing whether the meeting structure that we established two years ago makes sense for us now. And so I think the core lesson that I've learned is you got to dedicate the time to having those conversations and to paying attention to that stuff because it is so easy to let the work, quote unquote, the programmatic work of whatever you're doing kind of overrun everything. And I think when you do that, ultimately the work will suffer because the success of the work is dependent on the success of the processes. And I know if we weren't this intentional about it within Resolve, I think we would have seen huge staff turnover. 
I think we would have seen just kind of a lot of internal issues of lack of communication and siloing and, you know, the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. And I think ultimately, we would not have had the impact that we have in the world if we hadn't been focusing on the infrastructure from the beginning. I will say on the topic of, you know, an infrastructure for rest, Resolve offers unlimited paid time off and paid time off is encouraged in some specific ways that I'll share in just a second. But there's also two opportunities annually, once in the summer and once between Christmas and New Year's where the whole office closes. I think this has been really important because I think, you know, especially when people are connected to the mission when the work is so value aligned. And also because the folks who carry out the work on Resolve Philly's team are in lots of ways very much in proximity to the communities that we are serving, rest is hard. Rest is super hard. And it's hard to rest, I think, also knowing that the work doesn't stop and that your coworkers aren't stopping. And so it becomes easier for everybody to rest when everybody is off. And so having those two points every year and We have done that since the beginning. I think that's been really key. The other practice that Jean and I started doing for one another, and now our colleagues at Resolve do it for each other, and that's just putting in time off on one another's calendar. It'll be maybe two or three weeks from now, and I would go into Jean's calendar and just... I feel like she needs some time off. I'm going to put Thursday and Friday off (laughs) on Jean's calendar in like late April. And that's just another kind of example of how that has been built into the infrastructure, both because Resolve offers unlimited paid time off, and also because as leaders of the organization, that was something that the two of us prioritized. We set that example. And now people are looking out for one another and encouraging people to take time off. Man, we had a huge push to get X, Y, and Z accomplished you should really take some time off. You should really find a couple of days in the coming weeks to take off is a common conversation. And I'll just add to that by saying, colleagues looking out for one another. And also our COO is literally doing quarterly checks on folks' calendar to make sure they are taking enough time off. And if she has noticed (laughs) that someone hasn't taken time recently and they've been working a lot, she will have a direct conversation with them. So it's the sort of informal stuff and also their like literal processes built in because what we know about unlimited paid time off policies is that one of the downfalls is it often leads to people not actually taking as much vacation as they do when there are allotted time amounts. And so I mean, Cass has a great expression that unlimited paid time off is one of those policies that is not a crock pot policy. You can't set it and forget it. It takes continual kind of monitoring and upkeep. I also just want to make sure that folks who are listening have an understanding of the size of our organization. So when we started out in 2018, it was Cassie and I, it was the two of us. And it was the two of us until the spring of 2019, when we hired kind of our first small group of folks. We are now 23 full-time employees, and this has been, you know, over the course of a little over five years. And so throughout our organizational history, we've been able to maintain a commitment to these practices, even through our kind of exponential growth. I think that is amazing. I think it's so critical. I think it's something that is often overlooked. 
and that it's built into the fiber of the organization, I think speaks volumes. And when you were talking about infrastructure, Gene, some of the words that jumped out at me and really resonated where you talked about being intentional, prioritizing it, and making it a focus. And I think that that's so important when we are building our nonprofits, when we are leading nonprofits to make sure that infrastructure is built into the way we work. And not to forget that people are part of the organization, that they are really the heart and core of the organization. So when we talk about infrastructure, you can't do that without talking about the people. And so the fact that we have prioritized and been very intentional about how people rest within that organization as they're doing their work. I think it's a real model for others to follow. And I I feel like I could continue talking with you both about this for hours, but I do want to make sure that we ask one more question before we wrap this conversation. And it's about a book or artist that you think we should know about or should be paying attention to. Well, on the theme of rest, I am going to recommend Rest is Resistance by Trisha Hersey. I think particularly as a Black woman, rest is something that culturally is hard. You know, it's not celebrated when we rest. We are celebrated when we are strong and when we are fierce and when we are, you know, doing all of these things that like I, you know, I love those words too. I do. And also rest is so important. And the way that Trisha, some people might know her from the NAP ministry, but the way that she talks about her grandmother resting in that connection to ancestors, that connection to, oh gosh, it's just, it's beautiful. So I strongly recommend that. It's been a book that I've gone back to, not in a linear fashion throughout my my sabbatical over the last few months. So strong recommend. And for mine, I am listening to a book called 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. The subtitle is Time Management for Mortals, but I actually think that that's a real misnomer because his whole premise is that it is a false premise to believe that we can manage time. (laughs) Like time is this thing that happens and our need to try to control it constantly is actually getting in our way of being able to enjoy life in the most deep and real way. And so it's been kind of revelatory for me because I'm absolutely one who thinks constantly about how do I structure and control my time to be able to meet the demands of my job and being a parent and being a partner and being a friend and a daughter and all of these identities that I hold. And he actually gives this really wonderful on the, uh, I'll just circle back around or kind of punish us off on this topic of rest that we've been talking about. He cites these fascinating studies that were done in Sweden about how the use of antidepressants went down, had like a, a inversely proportional relationship. So went down anytime Swedes were off from work as a nation. Right. And so it's and there's been like a a few of these different studies that have shown basically that like time and rest is not just an individual good is a network good. It is more valuable to us when other people are doing that same thing. And so it made total sense for me 
in part because of our experience of what Cassie talked about, how we shut down two times a year in the summer and the winter to give our whole team a rest, because literally it is just easier to rest. First of all, when you know that your colleagues aren't working and also when the other people that you want to spend time with are resting too. And it is just a mood booster and makes people genuinely more happy and seen in their lives if they are not just able to rest kind of whenever they want, but also when people that they love and want to spend time with are also resting. So another plug for employers out there, just we in some ways are in the business of saving lives, right? We like to think that giving people access to accurate and authentic news and information is life-saving. It is. And also we can take a break for a week or two or three every year and the world still continues on. And I think probably most of us in the work that we do can afford to do that. Agreed. And thank you both so much for sharing both of these books. We will make sure that we put them in the show notes so that others can look them up and put them on their bookshelves or in their audio players. So thank you. And thank you so much for this conversation. It has been so incredibly powerful and it has just made me think about the way that we are working, the way we think about infrastructure within organizations, particularly as we we often say, people-centered design or people-centered work and really thinking about how do we ensure that our infrastructure is people-centered. And I think the examples that you share, the work that you're doing, it's just very clear that you are being very intentional about it. And, you know, I just think, again, it's such a model for folks to take a look at and and work from. So I just want to say thank you again so much for your time, for your honesty and your insight about your work and the way you approach your work as well. And I think hearing this conversation will allow others who are listening to ensure that they are continuing to build their organizations bravely. So thanks. Thank you so much. It was great to talk with you. Thanks very much for having us on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nonprofit Buildup. To access the show notes, additional resources, and information on how you can work with us, please visit our website at buildupadvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building bravely.